and good evening and good morning or good afternoon everyone and welcome to the other side of midnight that uh, magical time between dusk and dawn where we discuss here around the world the things that in daytime people kind of are too busy and they hurry on and they say oh, come on I'm I, I can't be bothered etc etc well at this time of night we bother and tonight we're going to be talking about something very interesting which is What's going on in Hawaii, and is there a symbolic connection to what's going on in Hawaii, which transcends the geophysics and the public uh, concern over homes being destroyed? I mean, something like 600 houses, to say nothing of uncounted numbers of public buildings, have now been destroyed by this creeping lava. We're going to talk about all that with my friend and uh, colleague and uh, someone I've known for many, many, many years, uh, Joseph Gill, who used to live in Hawaii and who actually has a degree in geology. So I thought we kind of put those two together and we talk about the situation going on in Hawaii. But before we get there, I want to flip us out to Mars. If you've been paying any attention, as I said last night, NASA held a very intriguing press conference on Thursday and came within a whisker. I mean, they're so close to getting pregnant. So close. You know that old joke about how you can't be half... Well, NASA's been able to accomplish the impossible. They are almost but not quite pregnant. I mean, it's really an historic uh, uh, accomplishment. And what I mean by that is they've announced they found organics. Well, we knew there were organics on Mars because they did drilling a couple, three years ago. And they found buried in billions of years old rocks, ancient organics, which probably come from some kind of organic process. Now, organic doesn't mean life, so there's where the ambiguity uh, comes in. But the latest measurement, which is of this seasonal methane, that is so incredibly close. I mean, the whole reason that Lowell, back in the 19th and early 20th centuries, thought there was life on Mars besides the obvious geometric regularity of the canals, was because he watched Mars through the telescope. Photography was very primitive back then through astronomical telescopes and didn't really come into its own until maybe 50, 60 years after he opened the observatory. But he would watch, and his fellow astronomers there at the Lowell Observatory would watch, and they would see these areas on Mars darken and lighten in a seasonal pattern, just like looking at North America or Europe or Africa during the appropriate seasons and seeing the wave of growth and then the decay in the fall and in the winter. So these seasonal markings on Mars were the first indication to Lowell and Schiaparelli and all the other guys we now associate with Mars information that there was something very interesting, very biological potentially occurring on Mars, idea seasonal change. Well, the curiosity results that the NASA people revealed last Thursday show that the methane in the atmosphere, remember, methane is an incredibly fragile molecule, and as on Earth, there's all kinds of things that destroy it very rapidly. So if you don't have a supply of methane continually resupplying what you see in the atmosphere, it will go away and relatively quickly, within years. So the idea that we're seeing methane on Mars A is interesting. 
B, the amount we're seeing is interesting because during these seasonal changes that Curiosity recorded, the the amount goes up and down by a factor of three to one, three times the amount. Now, that requires a voluminous supply of methane somewhere underground on Mars to provide the seasonal methane. And then you have to ask yourself, why does it vary with the seasons? Well, the conventional non-biological interpretation is that it's the warming and cooling of the surface, that somehow methane is trickling up from underneath, you know, maybe a mile down or somewhat less, gets trapped in the surface regolith and the surface sands and dust. And then because of temperature changes, it's released into the atmosphere in a seasonal pattern. That's the NASA current non-biological explanation, which kind of is stretching things because if they're going by this thing called Occam's razor, if you see seasonal changes in methane on Earth, it's because 99% of methane on Earth is produced by life, by biology. You know, cows, cows doing what they do and microorganisms and all that. Seasonal change releasing methane annually through the biosphere. On Mars, if it's the same thing, well, as I said last night, they're not telling us because I think these releases, these 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 time release aspirin press announcements are on some kind of ritual calendar, a ritual clock, a symbolic clock, which is going to connect in with our conversations with Joe Gill later on this, this evening. But if that's true, we're going to have to wait because they came right up to the edge and they didn't tell us the crucial piece of data that would allow us to decide is the seasonal methane on Mars from biology or is it from geology? And of course, as I said last night, the difference will be in the isotopes of the carbon in the methane. And for some bizarre reason, even though Curiosity is equipped with an instrument capable of making that critical determination, they either didn't do it or, even weirder, they didn't tell us what they found when they did it. And that appears to be opening the way for the Europeans with their trace gas orbiter, which is currently circling Mars in a 200-mile orbit and is equipped with the kind of spectrometers that can tell us that critical isotopic data. And I'm projecting that we're not going to know from the Europeans on this probably until around July, which is like a month. In a month, we may have a stunning announcement from the Europeans, and then NASA will go back and look on their data and say, oh, buried way down in the noise, we've got, and they will then correlate, and then we will be, as my grandmother would have said, off to the races. So what does that all have to do with what we want to talk about tonight? If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the uh, uh, banner for Joe Gill's page, which is the Hawaii Kilauea eruptions, gorgeous banner there of Kilauea erupting, that will take you to the guest page, Joe's page. Scroll down to my items and you'll see item number two. There's a huge dust storm on Mars which is slowly enveloping a major portion of the planet. And you have to know some history here. Every time Mars comes into opposition, has been historically noted for 
you know, over a century, two centuries. For some reason, right around the opposition, when Mars is closest and opposite the sun, it also develops these global dust storms that in some years have wiped out the surface for visual observations for weeks and months at a time. Well, we have a, a rover called Opportunity, which unlike Curiosity, which is powered by nuclear um, uh, decay, the Opportunity rover depends on solar cells. And it's far, far away from where the Curiosity rover is anyway. So the problem may be that the Opportunity rover, which has been now engulfed by this developing global dust storm at this current Mars opposition, because remember on July 27th, Mars comes into opposition with the Earth, as it does every two years. It'll be closer in July, July 27th, than it has been for something like 17 years, which is very interesting. That number 17 keeps cropping up. One does wonder. Anyway, one of the concerns at NASA is that if this dust storm is more severe and lasts longer than its predecessors, it literally could starve the Opportunity rover for solar energy because of the solar cells being blanketed by dust and the sun being dimmed in the atmosphere. I mean, it becomes really, really dark on Mars during these dust storms, uh, as dark maybe as a as a very, very cloudy day, and that doesn't do the solar uh, cell circuits any good because there's not enough energy to basically recharge the battery. So part of what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks is, is this dust storm, this predictable opposition dust storm going to take out one of our two rovers on the surface of the planet well as they would say <clears throat> stay tuned segueing tonight into what we're going to talk about if you look at the other links i have there in radio with pictures items three and four and five i have a series of stories on the explosion at kilauea which was early this morning sunday morning in hawaii and then we have more data on the lava flowing inexorably from the volcano down to the ocean. And it's now apparently filled up the little bay that it was dripping into over the last several weeks and has destroyed what was a beautiful idyllic spot for um, you know, swimming and, and all kinds of other activities, water sports and things like that. And it's also destroyed two vacation home communities on the shore of that bay, hundreds and hundreds of homes have now gone up in flames, including, I think, the mayor of, of Hilo has a has a um, house down there, and he's lost it, as a lot of other people have. 2,000 people have been evacuated, give or take. So this is a major developing story and a crisis for Hawaii. The question is, is it going to be a major crisis for the world? We're going to get into that with Joe when we bring him on. So without further ado, let me introduce my longtime friend, Joe Gill. I mean, the reason I wanted Joe on is because this show primarily puts on, as guests, two categories of people. Citizen scientists, those people who are just ordinary folks who have a predilection to know how science works, and they do interesting things apart from academia, and they produce really interesting results. And we've had many people on with these backgrounds, and we're going to have many, many more. The other kind of category that we try to cater to are what I call generalists, people who know something about a lot of different things, who 
who have had a lot of different background experience, life experience. And because of that, they know how to kind of relate this thing over here to that thing over there. In the, in the modern uh, idiom, it would be called, you know, connecting the dots. Well, generalists are good at connecting dots. If I have any proclivities or talents in that direction, it's because I think I've been a generalist most of my professional life. And, uh, I continue to collect more dots and organize them. And it's amazing what, what comes out as a pattern when you, uh, when you do this, not just as a kind of a hobby, but you kind of make it a profession to relate to a number of different areas of, of expertise and experience. Anyway, enough said. Let me introduce Joseph and we will get on with this very interesting morning. Joseph Gill was born March 2nd, 1949 in Portland, Oregon, and spent the first 20 years of his life in Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland. His mother, Trudy Gill, was an avid traveler. So every summer from 1960 to 1969, Joe would go with her overseas. They traveled through Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, Taiwan, and the rest of Southeast Asia. Then they went to every country in Central and South America, followed by West and North Africa, then every country in Europe. Joe never met any other kind of professional travelers in those early days, and the world was so different, so completely different to what it is now as he and his mom traveled together. While visiting 65 or 70-some countries, he noticed jewelry stores and thought to maybe go into that profession so he could continue traveling as an adult. Joe's father, Dr. Joseph Howlingill, MD, was an orthopedic surgeon in private practice and a senior professor at the University of Oregon Medical School and was always interested in learning new things. He took a course in geology one time and asked Joe to sit in on the classes, and that became a first love for Joseph ever since. Joe went on to the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, OMSI, for three weeks at Camp Hancock in eastern Oregon and took about two summer sessions in, in, in geology. He graduated with a BSc in 1970 from Portland State University in both geology and physical geography. Then he took a job for a year at Fox's Gem Shop, a fine jewelry store in Seattle, and his fate was sealed. Joseph started the GIA home course while in Seattle, and that is when he started a mad passion for collecting all books and publications in English on every aspect of gemology and jewelry. Joe then moved from Seattle to Denver in 1972, where he took some background graduate courses in geology at the Colorado School of Mines, and he was doing a lot of research simultaneously at the U.S. Geological Survey and there learned about the Gemological Association of Great Britain and its very coveted degree, the FGA. Now, usually it's about a two-year intense course where one in five people, only 20%, who take the exams manage to pass. Because of his geology background, he talked the school into letting him take only the second year and challenged the first year exam without the actual course. And guess what? They said yes. 
So he took the GIA final exam and two British exams over consecutives of three days and at the USGS library with a professor acting as a proctor. Joe received his GIA gemologist degree dated August 23, 1973, and his British degree, Fellow of the Gemological Association of Great Britain, dated November 19, 1973. And in 1975, the American Gem Society gave Joseph his certified gemologist degree. So without further ado, Joe Gill, this is the rest of your life. Well, actually, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you very much. Look forward to speaking with my old friend. <laughs> How long have we known each other? I mean, we haven't talked for years. Well, actually, we met in about 1990, uh, 1995. Something around and, there, uh, yeah. Yeah, I had... I had been calling up many different authors. I have as a bibliophile. I had one of the largest collections in the world on that subject. But um, we met about 1995, and we did our our meeting over the telephone. And you were very interested in learning about the Freemasons and secret societies at that time. And I had about 800 books in my library on that particular subject. So. I think that's where you may have gotten more excited about about, uh, about secret societies and what you've done in your books is bring all that information together. My, my background in the jewelry business was I wrote 25 letters a day, seven days a week for five years, and I accumulated the largest collection of books on gems, in, in uh, America, at least, and it included a hand it, handwritten inventory of the crown jewels of England. You hear me properly? I can. We can hear you five by. Oh, okay, because I just pulled my earphones out, and I'm only using my computer. Is that working for you? It's not optimal, but it, it'll, it'll, it'll pass for the show. I'll, I'll put the plug in, and you tell me if it's better or worse. Okay. Is that better? Is that better? There's no difference. Okay, good. I'll not use it then. Uh, so I, what I did, I started collecting all these books, and I had a handwritten inventory of the crown jewels of England done in the hand of King Charles I in 1605. I had all these wonderful rare books, and I became friends with different curators of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and the British Museum because I was writing them at the same time. Now, if you're in a prestigious position like that, you learn through experience that nobody ever writes you because they're all intimidated and they don't, they're afraid to write somebody that's a curator of the Smithsonian because why would you want to hear from me anyway? Well, I, I dispelled that and I wrote them. So I became friends with these many different curators and I had this library. So then I wrote what's called Gill's Index, which was a review of every book, article and paper that had ever appeared in the English language having to do with gems and jewelry. So then I became really famous because the Gemological Institute of America, for the first time in their 35-year history at the time, decided to publish my book in 1976. And I got a letter from the president of the GI, Dick Liddicote, saying, we will publish your book. Can we take a look at it first? <laughs> so, 
So they were excited about it. I told the curator of uh, the, the uh, Smithsonian about that book, and he was so excited because he knew I had this huge library. So he called up the GIA president and said, you have to publish this. So for the first time in their history, this is the most important gemological institute in the world by far. And so I went ahead and I published it in 1976. It went out and it, it just... It brought the world to me. I was getting calls from General Electric when they were producing the first synthetic diamonds on a commercial level. And I was hearing from people from all over the world were calling me. And I went back to, to Boston and and got an incredible job back there. And they didn't know don't, who I was. Uh, Joseph, don't, Joseph, don't tap on your computer. We're hearing it through the mic. Yes. Okay, great. So I was there at this new job. Uh, it was called the Youngs, JNSS the Youngs. We did about uh, $70 million a year. Uh, Liz Taylor was one of my customers. I had uh, Imeldo Marcos was one of my customers. And Wait, wait, wait. You know, she, uh, Imeldo Marcos was into gems as well as shoes? Oh, you have no idea. In her bedroom. Well, I sold the Liz Taylors. I'm supposed to be telling you this later on in the show. But I, you just messed it up. Okay, so I, I met Liz Taylor because I was living in the Plaza Hotel while I was working for uh, D. Young's. I lived in it, and I met her at there. And and later on, we became a bit of friends. And I managed to. She was with uh, Warner, uh, and who who became senator. And she was trying to raise money so that Warner could get. Uh, his his politics paid for it. So uh, we bought the, the stone and we ended up selling it to Meldo Marcos without telling her where it came from because she wouldn't have appreciated the fact that it came from a common actress. Wait, wait, you mean you bought Liz Taylor's diamond and then sold it to a Meldo Marcos? Yes. Without telling and, Marcos? But, oh, no, she would be totally... Uh, disturbed if she realized that came from a common actress. <laughs> Who was the most famous actress in the world at that time? <clears throat> yeah, she was actually what happened was she um, uh, uh, the, the studio when she was in with Ri Richard Burton and, and Liz Taylor were in this famous movie called Cleopatra. They wanted to do a promotion on, on this love affair between the two. So they heard about this big diamond that was up for sale at Sotheby's and my predecessor, I later became director of Sotheby's for the jewelry operations in North America. And, and before me was this other fellow and he was there representing Liz Taylor and they were only authorized to go up to a million dollars. So the uh, Cartier was in the audience and they wanted the stone too. So they went up to, one million fifty thousand, and my predecessor was not authorized to go beyond a million by the film company that was trying to buy the stone. MGM. So, yeah. So they. So later, my predecessor walked down to Cartier with Liz Taylor and and uh, asked them because they had a close relationship. We do things for each other, and. Uh, 
so they paid an extra fifty thousand dollars, and and she got the the ring, and it became the second greatest love story in all time. Mm. So they used this this uh, purchasing this diamond. They said it came from Richard Burton, but it didn't. It came from part of the contract, and so that's the story behind the story. And that was seventy nine carats. It was. Uh, F flawless and uh, had a GIA certificate on it, Gemological Institute of America. And when I bought it, I had to repolish it. It lost about a carat, went down to 78 carats. I have the original uh, copy of the original certificate on that and the check that we we made out to Liz Taylor for two and a half million. Hmm. And so that's a story that's never been told before. Unique. We probably should take a picture and put it on the other side of midnight so people can see what this diamond, this very famous diamond ring looks like. Oh, I think that you can probably, these days, ah, Google it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'll probably only be 80 or 90. But she had a straight line necklace that went around that, and I helped design that necklace for that. For that, uh, And you could take the... the pear shape out of the drop at the bottom and put it onto a ring so she could wear it as a ring or as a necklace and uh she was quite a lady she was beautiful i first met her when i was walking out of uh i stayed in the plaza hotel this is the plaza hotel in new york right yeah yeah i stayed there for five years on and off and right across the hall from me was liz taylor and but I, I didn't know, really, I'm not into movie stars that much. So I was walking out of there into the onto Central Park, you know, where you leave the plaza and you go out to where you're facing the park. Know it well. And she came. She came. Uh, she was walking towards the plaza where she was staying. And I stared at her <laughs> as rudely as you possibly could. And, and I said, I don't know who the hell this lady is, but I... I'm in love with it, right? So hmm. I'm, I'm walking, and I turned around, and I was watching her, and she turned around and looked at me. It's like, who is this guy looking at me? Hmm. So about six months later, I actually met her, and she said, oh, you're the guy on the street that was staring at me. Hmm. I said, I help myself. Well, that, so, was, her, that was her radiant yeah, that magnetism. Was, yeah, yeah, and and so I've met a lot of people. I met Aben Saud was a was a good friend of mine. I met him as a prince, and he later became the king of Saudi Arabia for years. And I spent time with him in Saudi Arabia. And Amir of Kuwait was a customer of mine, and and the Sultan of Brunei was a very good customer of mine when he came to San Francisco. In my later years, he went to my uh, came up to my office, and I took him over to a jewelry firm whom I did business with and he and he bought about four hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry. So that endeared me to that firm very well. And uh you know what it's uh so basically I I uh wrote all these letters and accumulated this library and I became famous and I was guest speaker at the GIA teaching their professors for quite a long time. I have this memory it's kind of like uh, photographic memory and so i could people would call me up one one time the head of the gi gia uh, laboratory i can tell the story because he's dead bob cranshield called me up in boston and said joe i want to know do you know anything about diamonds falling out of mountings in swimming pools 
you know, I, you're my last resort. I've tried everybody else. Nobody knows. So I'll even remember that. 1952, there was a story, there was a report in the GIA journal about your diamonds that fall out of mountings. And that was repeated with an update in 1976, excuse me, 1956. And then I said, hey, Bob, you said yes. I said, you wrote those articles. So he wrote the articles that I was referring him to because he had read, <laughs> written hundreds and hundreds of articles in the journals. He didn't remember his own article. He forgot his own work? Yes, yes. I'll tell you what, this hold it there. <clears throat> We're at, hang on, hang, Joe, Joe, Joe. We're at the bottom of the hour. We're at the bottom of the hour. Here's the rest of it. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Joe Gill, <clears throat> who has a million interesting stories. He's traveled the world for 60-some years, and we'll get back to him. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. first hour of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinthea, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. 
Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back <clears throat> with a frog in my throat again on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Joe Gill, who's literally half a planet away. I mean, the technology to do this these days, I've been in radio for, well, kind of full time now in the last couple, three years. But I was doing radio back when Joe was traveling around the world. And I must tell you, the technology for bringing in guests from halfway across the planet has so expanded and has been made so simple, except for a plug or two or a USB port and little stuff like that. So anyway, let's go back to Joe. Joseph, I want to ask you a metaphysical kind of philosophical question. What is the human preoccupation? I almost would say obsession from people like Liz Taylor to the future king of Saudi Arabia to the average person with gemstones and diamonds in particular. Why are we so focused on jewelry and gems? Well, I just want to say one sentence on my last story, and then I will answer your question. I had this call from the head of the GIA lab for 45 years. I give him the references which he wrote himself. And in the next journal that came out to the world of gemologists, he said himself, I had this question and I called up Joe Gill in Boston and he gave me the answer. So that taught me uh, peripherally about humility and it was, it added to my reputation quite a bit. Now, I think that what I, I really, as much as I've studied this, uh, I don't really know if I can tell you the answer to that. Myself, 
this is terrible for me to say, I don't buy diamonds. I, I have one from my wife's wedding ring, a, a pink diamond, a blue diamond, a yellow diamond, and a green diamond, all natural colors. But uh, it's, it just, I love the science and the history and the geology and the geography that went along with these gems because gems have no respect. They'll be anywhere. They can be out in the middle of nowhere. They can, you know, they found a diamond in the Seine River, a natural diamond in the Seine River in Paris. They found a 40-carat diamond in Arkansas, Murfreesboro, Arkansas. There's a diamond mine down there. There are diamond mines literally all over the place. And Lesotho now is in, is a, it's an Inselberg country in South Africa. It's producing wonderful big diamonds. But uh, I think who really sells diamonds are De Beers. And the fellow that came up with the famous saying, diamonds are forever, was a close friend of mine at Ayers, the advertising firm in New York City. And um, so diamonds are forever. Pure carbon, hardest substance known to man. And it's, uh, and, and gemstones, uh, Rubies. I sold a 36-carat gem ruby that I bought from the king of Burma, whose family owned that mine for hundreds of years. I bought a 36-carat from him, and I sold it to Aben Saud, who was then king of Saudi Arabia, for uh, about $15 million, along with a Nasak diamond, which is probably the third or second most famous diamond in all of history that came from India, and I sold that to him as well. But then uh, then what happened is I was a big buyer at Sotheby's, and Sotheby's asked me to go and be a director for Sotheby's, and, and so I did that for a while, and I brought their business up 400% in a short time. And then I started my own business in San Francisco. And I did that for seven years, started September 6, 1981. And I retired walking away from my office door in San Francisco, September 6, 1988. So this year is the 30th year of my retirement. And so, you know, if you're, I always tell people, if you're ever fortunate enough to make a lot of money, don't spend it. Just invest it simply. I've never lost any investments in 30 years. So my message to people, my name, my last name is Gil. So Gil is a servant. So I'm a servant to the people to try and bring information that's relevant to make their life a better place. And this is what I do. I hand out libraries all over the world, digital libraries. And, and I'm trying to make... A, give back what a glorious life I've had. You know, I can remember sitting by the pool in Bel Air with uh, Barbara Streisand and uh, Cher by the swimming pool, showing them some jewelry that I had. And I thought that was a pretty good time. My, and one of the wonderful times I had was I got a call from, from, uh, what's the silence speaker. May West. May West, yeah. And I was supposed to meet with May West, but she died the next week. And oh, so that's a shame. Yeah, it was just, you know, some of the, and a friend of mine was the president of the Screen Actors Guild in 
in uh, Beverly Hills. So he picked me up in his limo because, you know, he was trying to show off that he knew somebody from Sotheby's and I enjoyed his company. And all the movie stars would line up in front of us and introduce themselves to me and, and say hello to him because he was the guy that handed out the contracts for the different movies that were becoming available. And, and he would be the one that would suggest different stars would be for, for different parts. So I knew Candy Spelling and her husband, Aaron Spelling, the one that did, they did Love Boat and, and a bunch of other movies. But so it was it was an interesting profession at that level. And um, uh, there's a fellow that I helped to train in San Francisco, and uh, he ended up going to Beverly Hills. And I'll mention his name, Martin Katz, Martin Katz Jewelers. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful man. And uh, very honest. No, not an advertisement. I'm just talking about as a person. So I've tried to help out other people and uh, give back what I get. So I've been retired for 30 years, but my wife and I now have been traveling continually every day for 15 years. And I've been to over 150 countries, have been around the world over 30 times. And if you ever have the opportunity when you're sitting around the United States to meet somebody who has traveled the world to any kind of an excess, be quiet and listen to them. Because they'll teach you that there is a whole world out there outside of the U.S. I love the U.S., but I've never been to a country that I could say I didn't like. In fact, the first question people ask me, and we've been interviewed by many different radio people, is which country do you like the best? And I always say the same thing, whatever country I'm in at the time. <laughs> because, yeah, whether you're in, I've been to over 40 countries in Africa, and, and uh, wherever I go, we meet great people. And every all your listeners out there, I want to tell you, it's a great world. Travel. The news only brings you bad news. We never, hardly ever see it when we travel. We've been traveling now on this trip, which was, I'd already gone to 80 countries before I started this trip or more. Uh, we've never had a problem. Okay? We, we came from... From uh, Tunisia, we came from uh, Morocco, we came from Cuba, we came from Albania, we came from Egypt, southern Egypt, we went from, from the border of Sudan all the way up to Alexandria, where I gave my digital library to the Library of Alexandria for the research department, and uh, 650,000 books. And so, you know, we just... And Albania has it. We gave it to Nepal. All of Nepal has it. It just is wonderful to make a difference. <clears throat> and that's it. And these, a lot of these books came from archive.org, which I, I economically support in a, a large way. And they've managed to digitize 10 million books, including all the rarest books in the world. So you can download PDF from archive.org, PDF, that's pictured from the front to the back, of every edition of every book that Darwin ever did, or that any of the old tomes, or the books I used to have in my own huge, wonderful collection. I don't do that anymore. I've got it all on my computer. So 
all this information that was hidden from us and only people that were crazy collectors like myself are now completely available on the internet at archive.org, which has millions and millions of visitors every day. And the guy who runs that, he was very successful. He was one of those Silicon success stories. And he's taken his money and he's put it into this organization and he's got several thousand libraries now giving him books. You can download for free. No, you don't have to be a member of anything. You just go to archive.org. You can download seven or 800 books on Freemasonry. Just type in Freemasonry or Masonry or on geology. You can get De Ra Metallica or De Ra Fossorilium, which were uh, 14th century works just done after the Gutenberg Bible, and they're free. Now they sell in physical form for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had a first edition of Shakespeare, 1623, that I sold in 73. Mm. And I've handled handled some of the rarest books in the world. Now, when you and I first met, Joseph, by phone, and unfortunately, uh, I got to Hawaii a couple times, uh, once uh, by myself to speak and then once with Robin to measure the eclipse uh, at, at Mauna Kea. But by that time, you were peripatetically wandering around the world again. So we, we really physically have never met, which I find fascinating that in this world of global culture, we can now talk to each other, relate to each other, be friends with each other, and never physically cross paths. Oh, we have kindred spirits. I can feel. Them. Oh, let, I'm not kidding. Let me. Let you know, me. I. I want to talk to you. Uh, this information are you divulging through your interest that shows that the, that the society and world that we live in is complete what they call Maya illusion. We are living in a world of illusion. I was asked to be speaker. I didn't look for the job. I was a lecturer at Harvard for several years, three years, on and off. And I quit Harvard. And what I said when I left was 50% of everything you're teaching here in the science department has been disproven 50 years ago or more. And I can prove it from publications in my library. Say, for instance, like the Continental Drift Theory. If you read the original Wagner paper, which I read at the USGS in Denver, you'll find that he didn't talk about continents sliding around and breaking off. What he did was he said that the, that the planets that are nearest the sun are small and dense. And as they move out into the Jovian planets, they increase in size and decrease in density. So if you took a blue balloon and spray painted it round, uh, brown, then you blew it up the other half of the way, the cracks would form in the brown paint layer and you'd see the blue balloon underneath. And that is my go on what is happening as our Earth is moving away from the sun at a very slow rate. It's increasing in size measurably. Someone's typing again. I hear typing on the computer. I'm pooping around. <laughs> no, it's increasing in size and decrease in density. So, 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 so hang on, hang on. You're, you're saying, 
you're saying that Wegner was into the so-called expanding Earth model. Yes. Yes. I wonder, I wonder if Neil Adams knows that. Oh, I don't know. But these are original handwritten papers. And things have been changed so much. You used to get more honesty in the journals that came out before uh, 1900. Information has been controlled. I remember this one article I read from, from 1860, and it was about this Indian woman that had been buried by this, by this river in Pennsylvania. And the highway department, she'd been buried there, an Indian lady. The highway department was going to put a bridge across the, the, um, the river. So they were going to do the footings right where her, her uh, where the grave was. Right the grave was and so they contacted them so they dug up their mother and their mother weighed 125 pounds when they buried her seven years before and when they pulled her out she weighed 950 pounds and she was totally fossilized so what they teach in the geology department is now if something dies it falls in about 20 million later you know hundreds of thousands of years later it becomes fossilized but that's not True, things become fossilized really quick. And I've seen fossilized fence posts. I've seen, you know, and the Christians bring this out because they're arguing with, with evolution. And I'm not a Christian, but I do want to follow all evidence no matter where it takes me, even if I've got to reformat my brain hard drive and look at things from a different point of view. Because every time I find out I'm wrong about something, I'm happy because I've learned something new. You know, you get set into these belief systems, these different religious belief systems, whether they're science, which is a religion, or whether they're the different so-called formal religions, or belief systems. Or you go to university and you spend all your time, spending all your money, you leave with this huge debt, which of course is the reason for copyright. That's the reason, it's not, they don't care about authors. They just want to make sure that every student leaves with the twenty-five to two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollar debt over their head, and you multiply that a few million times, you've got a lot of economy coming in. So, you know, I have I have a tendency to go off, but I think that. that uh, <laughs> Let me try to steer you back because because when you and I first talked, you were there in Hawaii. The yes. th- the thing that really stuck I, in my mind, I, Joseph. This thing yeah. that stuck in my mind was you were extolling the virtues of your 8,000-volume private library. And I was so looking forward to seeing the library when I finally got to meet you in Hawaii, and then our paths didn't cross, and I never got to see the library. What happened to your incredible private 8,000-volume library? Well, I ended up selling it. It took me four years to sell it, and I sold it internationally. And I have replaced that little tiny library with 650,000 books on all subjects, all subjects, including you have your own place in the library with your speeches and talks and even some of your written work. Someone's typing. Don't type, folks. Don't type, please. Thank you for telling me that. I'll put my hands down. But... uh, (laughs) But anyway, it's it's uh, 
you know, my gift back to the world. So over 100 universities use my research library now. Okay, let me just check that link to the archive site because we want to put that up on the other side of midnight. It's HTTPS colon forward slash archive.org. And you can download over 10 million books, You including if you do a search, Joseph O. Gill, that's O with a period, Joseph, middle initial O, last name Gill, you'll see the many different books that I have contributed, including my own book, and which is Gill's index to all articles, books, and papers ever written on the subject of gins. And it's about 400 pages, and uh, it got great reviews in Europe, and and, and it, it just went, did well, and it was a good contribution to the subject. And that's and I made no money on it, but um, I became famous because of it. And you know that was my payoff. But my big deal was to get the information out there to make the science uh, a little bit more credible, and that's what it did. So you have shifted from hard copy, eight thousand plus volumes in a in a in a building, to a digital archive. That's kind Huge. of distributed all the over the planet. In the world. It's there's nothing like it. I've got over over twenty thousand high resolution maps. I've got over sixty thousand uh, audios, thirty thousand videos. I have every edition of every book that Darwin ever did. I've got uh, you know. It's just I'm a crazy, crazy collector. And some people play tic tac toe, but I collect books, articles and documentaries and I organize them in a meaningful way and as I said over 100 international universities use it as some of their main research including the Library of Alexandria and uh, and Albania and Zambia and Peru and Bolivia and Colombia but uh, I don't make a big thing about it because of the, the uh, the ramifications. I do this anonymously and I do it free. So all they have to do is just give me a hard drive. I'll spend 30 hours making a copy of it and give it to them. And what they do with it is their own business. Have so you heard about something called the ARC Mission Foundation? Uh, I've heard of it, but I wouldn't say that I know that much about it. I'm sort of busy doing this stuff. Well, the, these are these are folks. I'm not quite sure where they're located. I think they're located somewhere in 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 uh, Europe. They're, the 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 um, the library is called Arch A R C H, but it's pronounced Ark A R K, and uh-huh. and they provided Elon Musk when he did his you know Falcon Heavy boosting his Red Roaster into orbit. They gave him a set of quartz uh, storage units that have incredible image uh, and information density and he's talking I've been trying to get a hold of those say again i've been trying to get a hold of those for my library my library is worth that kind of consideration well heard we, about them. we are trying to reach those people because i want to have one of them on the air and talk about because they're talking about archives in other places in the solar system including yes. geosynchronous orbit on the moon right on spacecraft that go to Mars, whatever, so that if something happens to our current civilization, 
there will be records and archives scattered around the solar system so that the future can pick up where we left off. Or continue. Or continue. Yeah. Remember, we don't learn anything. We've never learned anything. We just remember what we knew. And that is what Plato said. Okay, I'm going to have to... Hang on, hang on. I need to challenge you on that. What do you mean by that? And, well, that means that Plato said that when we were born, we knew everything. And in the process of being born, we forget everything. Are we talking past life memories? Yeah, that's right. And that's the reason why I don't go for past life or future life, because we're just living the moment. We're here for this this uh, metaphysical experience to learn that we all need to get along. You know, the truth is the people in North Africa are not less intelligent than we are. The problem is when we give them the IQ test, it's made for white people, it's made for Europeans and Americans. So those people in North Africa, the smartest man I ever met, and I spent some years at Harvard and I've spoken at Oxford twice, was a black man from Nigeria And I saw him personally do seven term papers in one night with references, page numbers, and he was and his wife was typing them all out. (laughs) And he got straight A's on all seven of them, and he didn't even proofread them. And I did one that night, and I was very proud of myself. He did seven in one night, and he worked at the library, and he would read at the library, and he just remembered everything. One time I was flying down to New York with the with uh, Clifford Frondell's wife. He was the head of the, uh, the the geology department at Harvard. And I walked into her office and she was looking at this four inch thick book and we were having to head off to get the airport, right? So I'm sitting in the plane reading my book and I'm looking over to her and I said, why didn't you just bring a book to read? She said, I did. Didn't you see the book I was looking at at my desk before I left? So she flipped through it and she was reading it on the way to New York in her head. She had photographically remembered every page in the book, and she was just now reading. That's, you know, there are smart people everywhere. You never know where you're going to meet them. So listen. You know, I'm 69. I, I talk too much. But I've spent a lot of time listening and a lot of time reading and most time the best teacher in the world is travel. There's books are wonderful, and I've owned some of the rarest books in the world. I sold the first. Uh, I sold a copy of the Constitution. Taylor, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. Yeah. My, my guest this morning is Joe Gill, and we're kind of ranging the gamut of generalist, generalist uh, conversation. You know, it's uh, my grandmother used to talk about heifers. Anyway, Joe and I are going to talk about Hawaii. I guarantee you we're going to talk about Hawaii. I want to talk about his travels. I mean, you just mentioned this fascinating individual he met in Africa, someone else on a plane. I want to dip a bit more into that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>